Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the program. This is Averco Kelly. This week, I am with Vlad Chubachinko. So you are a Ukrainian nurse, and you are here on our austere emergency care course, our Blanc-Field care course in Malta. So tell us about, you've been here two days now. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you haven't left yet, so that's probably a good, <laughs> good sign. So tell me uh, your experiences here in, on the course so far. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity and the guys who made it possible for us, for Team Ukraine, to get here to get this course. And we are really happy about this course because we are like, we're kind of get ready to a lot of skill station, but it's a little bit uh, not about that. It's about like changing the mindset. And it's the stuff that we need to do in Ukraine when uh, we're talking about our attitude to prolonged casualty care. So every day after the course, we do lessons learned and a lot, a lot of lessons have been learned. So thank you for that. It's a great course, unique one for sure. It's great to have you on the, on the course, and I think you come with a profound amount of experience in prolonged casualty care. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. would you be willing to speak a bit about prolonged field care for your practice? How, how does it look and what you're willing to say anyway? How does it look in your day-to-day job? Uh, actually, when we're talking about staying with a casualty for around hours it's not a prolonged in ukraine unfortunately it's typical in ukraine right now so we didn't even knew that we're doing prolonged when we were started doing that uh, in ukraine but we have a situation like we have on azovstal i think everybody remember it's the first months of full-scale invasion of russia and when they occupied mariupol and our defenders uh, were on azovstal with limited medical supplies and for weeks with a lot of casualty there. So that's why our idea is that we need to bring this prolonged casualty care trainings and mindset to Ukraine as soon as possible. Because you never know how the war will go on in future and how many uh, similar situations will appear in the future. So it's the main reason we're here. We like really need it. So what I'm hearing you say is what we call prolonged casualty care you're just calling care that's just a normal day for you so yeah but our attitude is slightly different as i said you're changing a mindset a little bit we are like skipping a lot of important details in our care and through your course right now we get like a full full picture of what we are doing and probably it will change some like uh, attitude and some uh, some providing in future at least in my unit so of the two days that you've you've had on the course, what would you bring back to your practice? What have you what, what will you change? Uh, so for now it's about vital signs. We stay let a little bit more stick to details about taking vital signs and such a simple tools as uh, your instructor said, like you're in prolonged environment. So if you need a minute take a minute to take wild science. So, yeah. So such a, a lot of small stuff that uh, gives a big picture, more detailed and more informative for next stages of care or for telemedicine. If you call somebody on WhatsApp or Zoom to some doctor to get some consultation about your casualty. So it, it's all about small details. A lot of really valuable information about uh, septic shock because it's one of the dangers that is there when you stay for a long with a casualty. 
uh, especially right now when we have guys who get like uh, been wounded once and then they recover and been wounded again and they are unresponsive to some antibiotics already and so yeah it's a challenges that we have so the steps that you propose to treat septic shock is the one that we need right now so we, we've had that lecture in anything in the lecture in septic shock that uh, you are going to take away and, and, and add to your practice like a, a structure of diagnostics, like not take only one or two signs to see a big picture, not only like a wounded hand that it's like hot and painful and stuff like that, but a bigger picture is vital science. And then like we're trying to build it like airway later, we're trying to build a sepsis later right now for ourselves, for Ukrainian units uh, through the lectures that you presented. Just like take a new lecture and translate it in Ukraine, yeah. Right. Yeah. And are you using the clinical practice guidelines, the CPGs? Yes, okay. yes, yes. And I think JTS has translated those in Ukraine. Yeah, it is. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So tell us about yourself. What is your qualification? Uh, what do you do as a medic? Yeah, so I came uh, to like first aid courses and uh, paramedicine like years ago as a mountain rescuer and, and it became like part of my interest and I... Uh, get some TOTs for basic life support and other kinds of stop the bleed and other kinds of training. And it was like kind of enough for me for some period of my life. But then I started guiding, like a mountain guiding, and I started to dig a little bit deeper in this. Uh, and then it came revolution known as Euromaidan, and I participated there a little bit. And it's the beginning of like a big war in 2014-15. I participated a little bit there. But then through like family, family occasion, like I stopped for some period of time, only like guiding a wilderness medicine courses in Ukraine. That was like my own only connection with medicine. But uh, I am kind of a guy that trying to be prepared. So it was not like I can say that it was obvious, but I was getting ready to full scale invasion. And at the beginning of full-scale invasion, like a couple of weeks before, I, I get a group of people around me who are ready to use uh, the skill that we have to make everything we can for our country and for our army. So we get uh, a group of uh, first aid and tactical medical instructors together. Uh, at the beginning, we mainly did uh, TCCC trainings. And later on, we get like officially... Uh, we became officially part of bigger organization, which is called Extraordinary Tactical Medical Center. It's a part of like, it's a volunteer medical organization, which is like uh, supported and controlled by army. So we have like official uh, coordinator and we have, have official army tasks. Uh, and we study a lot through these years. So right now we train all kinds of TCCC training from ISM level to CMC level. And we train around 19,000 people already. The team wow. is pretty big. The team of instructors also pretty big. So, and the numbers are big. But uh, we understood that it kind of a drop in the sea, a drop in the ocean compared to the size of the army. Uh, so we found support abroad. A great team of Swedish uh, medical instructors supported us and raised us a little bit in our skills and abilities. And we started to participate in the med evacuation missions also in a 
so-called like a f- first part of evacuation, usually called Kezevak in Ukraine, Medivac, and working in so-called stabilization centers. So right now we have like three vectors of our job. We train, we uh, do Medivac and some medical uh, providing in the stabilization center. And also we support different uh, organization with uh, medical equipment like hospitals, stabilization centers, units, etc. So that's the story behind. Yeah. So you, you have three different levels of, of evacuation. You have Kazivak at point of injury. They get pulled back to a casualty collection point. Is it? Uh, sometimes it's uh, so it usually like it, it different from destination to destination, from part of the front to part of the front. But if to take in generally, it look like that. They have a point of injury, and the point of injury soldiers uh, helps themselves, or they like uh, help body aid, stuff like that. If they have a CLS or combat medic in units, great, they participate in this first aid and call for help. And usually it's a case evac when it's not a medical vehicle, but some vehicles that is good for that terrain. Sometimes it's armored vehicle, sometimes it's something like Soviet MTLB, like uh, armored vehicles that it can go through like almost any terrain. Sometimes it's just regular four-wheel drive car painted green, like a pickup car where you can throw casualty mm. and pretty fast drive uh, to next uh, point. It's not a casualty collections point. It's some like approved points on the map. So nobody is waiting there usually. usually. Station, yeah, station, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just you do your nine-line report or any kind of report they use in the unit, and the case will go there, pick up a casualty, and drive to casualty collection point. And casualty collection point at the point when we uh, put the casualty from case car to medevac car. That's where the medic starts. Yes, but the situation in Ukraine is different in different units. In some units, medevac cars are well-equipped, well-trained personnel, with everything you can imagine for like modern tactical medicine and some units are just old ambulance with almost nothing inside so it's not like similar for the whole army but still we call it medevac because it's easier for us to use like that and the medevac drives to stabilization center stabilization center is we can compare to some kind of improvised hospital uh, the main aim of stabilization center there time of medevac is really prolonged. This is why we need to split it to do damage resuscitation and some other stuff to st- stabilize our casualty. And then the casualty is ready for next medevac, which takes usually hour or hours to the hospital hospital. Uh, which proper, hospital. proper hospital with uh, surgeons and with surgical rooms and with surgical possibilities, uh, x-rays and stuff like that. So it's usually like that. But it depends on uh, different kind of fronts. In some parts of fronts, case are boats, actually, mm. through Dnipro River in Kherson, or even in uh, Donetsk region, we have case through through rivers. In some part, we don't have, like, case like a medical vehicle. The front line is so close to stabilization center that only, like... Uh, M113 or vehicles like that, like mm-hmm. army vehicles driving there, take as many casualties as they can and drive them to stabilization stabilization center. So no case evac, as I described, uh, appears there. So the situation is like that. We don't have 
uh, air evacuation. That's why we need the stabilization center to like break a chain of medevac to stabilize the patient. And if we, we feel a huge lack of qualified medical personnel, anesthetists, uh, basic trauma surgery and stuff like that, that's why all the qualified medical personnel is in stabilization center. We cannot like put good anesthesiologist in every car. That's why, yeah, we get them together in the stabilization center. Medics bring casualties, stabilize casualties, and then bring them forward to hospitals. So you'll have uh, an anesthetist, you'll have uh, a, a surgeon, and they just do uh, damage control resource yes. surgery. Yes, yes. Stabilize. Uh, blood, yeah. blood products are at that point. Uh, yes. Okay. For now, okay, uh, we had a huge, like, win uh, through last uh, weeks. Uh, I can say, say thank you to uh, Maria Nazarova and her team. They did a lot. And right now we had a legal uh, uh, opportunity to resuscitate blood on pre-hospital environment by pre-hospital personnel, by combat medics. And right now we're working through building cold and hot chains for blood resuscitation. And in stabilization center where we work, we resuscitate blood like a lot, like on daily basis, like four, six unit daily, I can say. And, oh, yeah. and we can see the results and they are like magical. Like it's even hard to compare to resuscitating crystalloids that we mm. used before. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. And you're doing blood products as well as threshold blood at that point? Yes. For now we have uh, refrigerators and we build like a logistical chain. So right now we have whole blood. But before that, if we need uh, blood, we used to uh, work in blood uh, banks. Yeah, so. That's brilliant. And now you're getting a supply of, of blood coming in, so you don't have to use the, the walking blood bank. Yes, yes. But still, we're trying to keep fit in that uh, direction also, because you never know when the blood uh, adds. If something goes wrong, if some hospital, some medical unit is going to be bombed, and we will feel lack of blood, we still need it. Special Operation Forces uses walking blood product, mm. working blood bank program a little bit more, but the specific of their job is like, yeah. It seems to be the same world around. Yeah, probably, yeah. probably, yeah. It's like a logical way to do it. So how often are these centers having to move? They're not stationary. They're for ages, aren't mm. they? Like they're, no, they move. They move. Yeah. How often? Like, it depends. Sometimes on a weekly basis, sometimes it, it's appeared during the winter, Bahamut and Solidar campaign, some stabilization center moved like a couple times through the week, even because the front line was moving its signatures, a lot of medevac cars driving to stabilization center, and not every stabilization center starts from proper uh, log- logistical protocol when it's not allowed to turn blue lights or stuff like that to like show where everybody bring their casualties. And the front line was moving all the time. That's why they moved a lot. But on some destination, you can see deep state map or any kind of like war map. In some destinations, stabilization centers are there for some period of time. Not because it's safe, because no other place to put them. Yeah. So, Vlad, tell us about the types of casualties that you're seeing. Within tons of TBIs, like, is like we worked with the statistics a little bit. 
and in some directions, like almost 100% of casualty has TBI, different kind of. Is that because of indirect artillery fire? Yes, and drones throwing grenades and at your head and artillery and uh, mortars and other stuff. So it's like not a war of close gunfight, it's a war of artillery. And probably everybody knows it in the world already. So a lot of TBIs and a lot of challenges in future for us because some guys already had four or five TBIs and they need to come back and fight again. Yeah, and the outcome gets less and less. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Even I, like, had two mild concussions already, but I'm okay, but still, one day maybe it will appear somehow. Uh, We have a lot of... uh, big wound cavities because of big artillery shrapnels. And it's challenging because we are trained to do wound packing on a really tiny, comfortable uh, models that everybody uses, which is like kind of logical for small shrapnel or a bullet. But when it comes to war in Ukraine, sometimes you need like up to eight silex gauzes to wound pack it. So it's like huge. Yeah, and we're talking about it that probably we need to start to make like new kind of wood models for that stuff already so and the second challenge vice versa is a really really tiny shrapnel wounds uh when you use even some tool to wound wound pack because it's like impossible to put finger in there uh what else like through the statistics that we had uh, with my unit and we are working through the statistics almost every Six casualty has penetrated in, uh, trauma in the torso, and the reason is a kind of the war. But we probably can move to another kind of body armory, but it's impossible because the army is one million plus mm-hmm. guys, and it's impossible to like get everybody re-equipped, really equipped. So as I usually say, plate carrier is not enough. It's fancy, it's comfortable, but it's not enough mm-hmm. for war in Ukraine. And that's why we, we always uh, try to figure out, should we move uh, occlusive dressings to ISM level of training? We shouldn't. So like, okay, I'm thinking about that a lot and working with that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if to say around like, 80% of casualties who get to stabilization centers, they get uh, some shrapnel wounds and almost always concussion or TBI. Uh, and other percent at the different guys with uh, massive bleeding, airway compromise and uh, penetrating torso trauma. There are some days when Russians use gas and there are challenging days when we have like hundreds of soldiers which with no wounds, but they're like crying uh, coughing, can't breathe, can't like dizzy, vomiting, and wow. stuff like that. So, what what type of gas have you? Oh, uh, uh, I will update you with yeah. the type of gas wow. later. I need to check. We had a day when around one like hundred fifty uh, casualties passed through one of the hospitals on the front line with a uh, gas poisoning. And you yeah. don't have a decon center set up, do you? No. No, yeah. we have, like we, as I said, my background. I'm not like a god of war or something like that. I'm like working and uh, teaching simultaneously. So it was an absolutely new challenge for us. As and you need to get all this cutting out 
of clothes to one specific place and to one specific plastic bags mm. to utilize it in specific way. Yeah, it was challenging for us to wash the guys and uh, all yeah. the stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the medics, the doctors, and, and, and the nurses, they're yeah. now cross-contaminated, aren't they? Yes, yes, yes. So it was yeah. like a new challenge, but it's not like on daily basis, but still, it shouldn't be there, according to Geneva, but... No, yeah. Russians don't care about yeah, Geneva. Yeah. Violations now. Yeah. There. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and tourniquet use. Are you seeing uh, overuse of tourniquets? Uh, yes. I would lie if I say no. Like, we're trying to do our best in converting tourniquets, but we still see a lot of overuse tourniquets. And my main reason is that, like, in generally, tactical medical instructors don't put enough stress of recognizing massive bleeding. A proper massive bleeding. Yeah, they just, you see blood, you put on a tourniquet and don't touch it. Combat medic will touch it later on. But combat medics are not always there. Combat combat medics can be casualties also. So that's the problem. Overusage of tourniquets. And some combat medics, like in uh, before the full scale invasion, the school of combat medics get a course of three months. Yeah. preparation so more or less okay and right now because of full-scale invasion only one month for preparation of combat medic sometimes they are just scary to touch the tourniquet yeah yeah on a like case of phase when you don't have proper headlamp or you cannot even like turn on that headlamp not to be striked by russians so yeah you can't use white light yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the red is not always like gives you the picture are you ready or not ready to convert the tourniquet? Yeah. So, yeah, overuse of, of tourniquets uh, and the lack of medical personnel of every level from, like, combat lifesavers to surgeons in a hospital. So, Vlad, what improvements need to happen in Ukraine? Uh, as I usually say, that uh, the TCCC is a great system but you cannot get some part of the system and don't use other part of the system. The system breaks. Mm. So I would love to see that we use the whole system. The biggest lag that I see is combat lifesaver level because you need like days to train, five, com- days, yeah. five days to train combat lifesaver and all the officers and commanders are usually give like eight to 13 hours for tactical medicine. That's it. Yeah, because they we need to do some stuff yeah. on the front line. Yeah, so yeah. in the short of time. Uh, so we need more tactical medical schools. Like we have... 205 center which like doing their best but only one center is not enough mm-hmm. so i i hope to see in future more tactical medical schools through through ukraine to train more combat medics and to train more cls level uh, soldiers mm-hmm. yeah so and then we will have like a great system and the problem number two is equipment uh Again, if we stick to the triple system, it's kind of obvious how to get a proper equipment. But it's a lot of rumors around, uh, like somebody tells someone that that is also a good tourniquet. We tested it in one hospital and one leg at one Doppler, and it worked. So it's great, and it costs $3, so it's ideal. So that's the problem also. Uh, but again, the answers are there. In uh, deployed medicine, you can get on the answers. Just take the whole system, not yeah. pieces of the system. Yeah. yeah, so that's the scene to like stuff to improve. And the preparation of uh, medical system in generally, for me, 
from my perspective, it would be great if every medical student through the years of study in medical university participated in the TCCC trainings a few times, prolonged casualty care to care trainings a few times, yep. and some simulation about like to start a stabilization center somewhere in devil's ass in the middle of nowhere. So that's achievable. Is the, yes. The, my, my only familiarization is the Chernobyl National Medical University. Which yeah. We, we were working with them before the war. And I bet they, and they have a fantastic simulation training center. Yeah, they do. I bet that they would jump at this to be able to, to do TCCC slash long field care, Austria emergency care as part of each year. They have to do five days of. Um, it, it, it would be like super great. Yeah, I'll have yeah. to have a meeting with Professor Kortba when yeah. uh, when yeah. he's back yeah. here. Yeah. We have same uh, like pre communication with. Uh, a simulation center of Karazin Medical University in Kharkiv. They are planning kind to do almost the same stuff, and they all actually have an, an AMT center, training center mm-hmm. right now. So they are growing their possibilities slowly by slowly, and I really hope they will get that idea also. We were doing IT less before the war. We were training as many as we could on the everyone knew was coming, and we only did about 100 but that's the best we could do. And we need to look towards the future and make sure now everyone has yeah, that. Yeah. hundred here, hundred there, and you get thousand. And yeah, as you say, a million. What about the medical system? So the, the Minister of Health, when I was there, she was trying to make some changes. I don't think she's there anymore. There's a new one. And, oh. and so there, there's blood now in the protocols. What, what systemic changes are needed um, to, to improve... The medical care. Uh, I can divide this answer in like two two vectors. And we're talking about Minister of uh, Health. The situation there is like really great because they are really open to new knowledge and are really open to discussion. So they are the one who supported combat medics in getting this possibility to resuscitate blood in a pro-hospital right. environment. Right. But we have like a military medical commanders and we need to switch their way of thinking. And we are doing it slowly by slowly. But slowly is not the speed you want to ha- get when you have a full-scale invasion. Well, it's interesting. So the civilian medical community is, is evolving faster. Yes, because like it's a joke, and I hope our listeners understand it, because they speak English. Yeah, because they can get a global knowledge. Because like deployed medicine, you can get information for free. And just in, in Ukraine. Yeah, and yeah. you can read it properly and implement it into uh, your healthcare system. Uh, and in uh, like, as almost every army structure in Ukraine, our medical uh, commander, uh, like medical commander unit, they are a little bit more conservative. The Americans have uh, an EMT course for a few of the medical schools. Now have you know, welcome to medical school. You're going to EMT, and they get them a four-week EMT license. They go out on an ambulance, and I think that's a fantastic way to teach medical students. I would love to see Ukraine do something very similar. As you say, every year they need to do some sort of pre-hospital. And the resources there, though, let's imagine that the war stops, like in some period of nearest future, and we have this pretty big amount of combat medics with like practical skills. 
which they get on the medevac or in a stabilization center and other stuff, you can use them to start the program. Just give them AMT, AMT license, just give them some like extra course, prepare them to work with civilians in civilian environment, in clean environment, because you cannot be clean in a battlefield, it's obvious. And you can start from them and then like multiply that uh, number through, through them. So Vlad, let's imagine it's 2028. It's five years from now. Where do you see Ukraine's medical system, healthcare system in, in five years? Like, okay, let's dream a little let's bit. Dream. Let's dream. 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 Yeah, I wouldn't like, I, I'm not ready to dream about the war is ended already and we won. It's kind of like a, a, dream, a big dream, but slate dream about medical. Medic. Achievable, but like let's dream like slowly by slowly. But if we talk about medical system, we can dream about it. I would love to be in NATO for sure. And I agree with that. yeah, so I would love to join to all this like systematical and clinical knowledge that you provide right now. I would love to know that somebody else calculating our Ukrainian statistics mm. and the whole world uses our experience to give a better uh, healthcare on a combat environment for, for army yeah. and civilians. Because everybody see the Kherson, Kharkiv, mm -hmm. civilians, big civilian cities constantly bombed. Our ambulances, our firefighters, our policemen are like true heroes also. Yeah, so it's one of the dreams. And I have another dream, like, uh, I think that, uh, and we're doing it slowly by slowly. Like, every law enforcer and every rescuer should be well-trained in uh, pre-hospital medicine. Uh, right now, when missile strikes a building, policemen are usually first on the, first on the, on the point of injury. And they should have possibility to use more skills. They should be well trained. Absolutely. Yeah, so I would love to have like police paramedics, firefighters paramedics, and uh, I don't know, um, rescuers paramedics, mm. yeah, because they're first there. And I also would like to to see the like social social group, the country, where like visiting first aid trainings is not like something for strange people. It's like normal to keep you in shape and that uh, skills also. So part of the secondary education with kids? Yes, so yes, they, they yes, yes, yes. So uh, as an example, you cannot apply for this job because for last half a year you didn't participate in any facade courses. Yeah. Why not? So it would be great. It would be great to become like a part of global uh, community in the healthcare system to share our experience and to make everybody richer with our experience, but to have a possibility to learn uh, from our colleagues and friends abroad also. Those, those are really good suggestions. There are goals to have, and it's, it's achievable. So in, in Ireland, the Dublin Fire Brigade, all are uh, paramedics. So they, they have a whole year of, of um, paramedic training. And in America, where I was working, they're EMTs. So every, every firefighter, every even every every law enforcement officer has a, a five day combat life saver course. 
we get a great, great example in Ukraine also right now in Donetsk region, which is like constantly bombed. Not, not the whole Donetsk region on the front line. Mm. There are cities and towns which are like, uh, yeah. So in Donetsk region, they made a unit which is actually called police paramedics mm. and they get in as many courses as they can in tech, in TCCC, at ETLS, etc. And the results are great. They have a couple of medevac cars. Uh, they always first responders on the scene after missile strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we support them with training as, and with medical equipment. And we saw a lot of video response from them. The results are great. On, on the example of one region and one unit, we can multiply that. That it's actually actually working. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. You also mentioned that we can learn from what you guys are experiencing. So one of my fears is this knowledge that you guys have in prolonged care. You don't even call it prolonged care. You just call it care. Yeah. So yeah. all this, this, this knowledge and learning of how to deal with difficult situations medically, I'm worried that that information is not going to be written down and passed on or research published on what works and what doesn't or the statistics of and, and I understand we can't publish those yet. Ten years from now, we can then publish statistics of what, what injuries were done or are seen at, at one location. Have you heard of any uh, organization or any push for keeping that knowledge? Uh, actually, my Medivac unit, through support of our commander, we are working on uh, that study right now. Yeah, we're trying to study, it's not like super surgical something, space technology medicine, but we're studying the position of the wounds and the amount of the wounds. And it gives us a little bit wider perspective of how should we change uh, TCCC ISM level. If it's the only possible course for your army right now, Mm -hmm. probably you should throw away something and add something. As an example, I can tell from our perspective, it appears that the wounds to arms and legs are 50-50. It's a little bit different from the statistics we have from Middle East operation mm. of uh, NATO countries. Right. So that's why we put in much more stress on the exercises, both arms and legs, when we're teaching tourniquets. And we have uh, a few more uh, like uh, lessons learned through the sort of work with the statistics. There are workshops uh, performed by different foundations and medical organizations. Like for sure, I know that we study blood resuscitation. For sure, I know that we study tourniquet syndrome. We call it tourniquet syndrome because it's not only compartment. Mm-hmm. It's like you should get a picture in complex. Like, right. And the reason is a tourniquet placed correctly or incorrectly in time or not in time, converted, not converted. But there is like guys who uh, study in that question. There are a lot of study about vascular surgery because there are big shrapnel wounds. Mm. So arteries, veins are ruined and ruined massively. And if you want to save a limb, you need to start from vascular surgery to give a circulation to that limb. Mm. So I know there are some studies, but I cannot like promise you that like in it, five or ten years you will appear. We're doing our best right now to publish our study, but uh, no prognosis, because it's a sensitive information. You should stay, stay yeah, you should stay really, really clear with understanding what are you showing to whom and when. 
That's why baby steps, unfortunately, for now. I think we will be patient and wait 10 years. Yeah, and thank you for that. Like, as I usually say, the whole world supports Ukraine. Uh, and the only stuff we can give back is our experience. So we should do our best to save this experience for the whole world. So one last question uh, for the, the listeners who would like to help, like to do something. What is the, the best way to support what you're doing in Ukraine and support Ukraine medically? Uh, donations, any kind of money, medical equipment, we are like grateful for all of that stuff. Uh, a lot of volunteer medical units, not only my unit. My unit is called Tactical Medical Nurse. Ta- sorry, my unit is called Tactical Medicine Nurse. But there are hospitaliers, there are MOAS, there are first volunteer, first volunteer field hospital. It's the name of the unit. Okay. It's a pretty old one and a pretty great one. Mm-hmm. So you can donate to any of those organizations or just message us or other colleagues in social media and ask what do we need. Because sometimes we feel okay about tourniquets. It's enough for some period of time, but we feel lack of some basic stuff like... Uh, Sam splints or stuff like wound that, packing. wound packing and stuff like that. So donations is best right now. Sometimes we hear that probably government should support, but like it's obvious for me that almost there is no government in the world that would like be powerful enough to struggle through such a big uh, war. So that's why I am okay with that. Government should uh, get F-16, Heimers, love javelin and we will do our best to get tourniquets wound packing bandages it's like our level problem we can focus on that yeah any other comments or thoughts before we close off uh yeah i would like to thank uh, to thank the whole whole world because we feel support from absolutely different countries even if the politics of this country don't support like ukraine the people from the country send a lot of stuff and send a lot of great messages so it's really great to feel uh, somebody behind your back that support you i want to say to every family and every foundation in europe and all over the world who take our Ukrainian families and put them in their countries for some period of time to be safe for women and children. Uh, so, like, like, yeah, probably that's the main message I want to wanna say for now. Thank you for everybody. We feel that support. I always uh, enjoy watching the, the Ukrainian families. As in Germany or in, in Ireland, we have, I think Ireland, we have the most per capita that we've taken in of Ukrainian families, which isn't much because we're a small country, but it's always heartwarming to see them going about having a normal, and these kids as well, aren't they? They're, they're, and they miss home and they're enjoying life. They're laughing. They're, they're in the park and we're, they have a chance to, to live whilst you and all these other people are, are trying to make a better world for them. So you guys are the heavy lifters. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming, and um, it's, it's an honor to have you here. Same for us. It's an honor to be here. It's a unique course and unique opportunity and unique people. Thank you. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. If you would like to earn CPD credits for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credit free access to our virtual field guide and discounts on our e-learning courses. 
You can join the team on our college website at quorum.edu.mt.